We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. weeks ago, a friend and mastermind member posted this on Twitter. He said, in the fall, I decided to join a mastermind group with Jethro. To be honest, I was skeptical of what a mastermind group would benefit me as a leader. Now I can't imagine a week without the support and learning I've gained from the crew. Grateful to be part of the family that forces me to be open and honest about my leadership and receive feedback to grow on. I hear people say all the time that they are skeptical of what a mastermind group can do. I get it. It took me a long time to join a mastermind group for myself. But when you are feeling lonely, like an imposter, or not up to the monumental task of shaping the lives of a thousand young people, it makes a difference being able to join a group of people who know how you feel and know how to help you. So I'd love to have you join us. Go to jethrojones.com mastermind. And let's schedule a time to talk about how the mastermind could help you. That's jethrojones.com slash mastermind. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am very excited to have Megan Raftery on the program today. She's a freelance educator, and we'll get into what that means here in a little bit. She's a former second and fourth grade teacher and a central office administrator. And she left education to pursue her professional passions on her own terms in 2018. So we're going to get into a conversation about what that looks like, what she's been doing. And if you want to follow her, she is at MEG5HAN on Twitter, 
or you can go to meganraftery.com. And of course, those will be in the show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. You can get links to both of those things. Welcome, Megan, to Transformative Principle. Thanks for having me. So, Megan, tell us what is a freelance educator? What does that term mean and why is that important? Just kind of a term I made up for myself. If other people are using it, I'd love to meet them. I pretty much just started uh, working with public schools when I always had a title that was really easy to understand, like second grade teacher. And just my job got more and more complicated to explain because then I was a gifted resource teacher, which isn't always explainable. And then I was a curriculum coordinator. And then I was a school and community partnerships coordinator. And then I worked for a private company and I had a really generic title there too. So when I decided to be an independent contractor to work for my own self, I just came up with a term that felt to me less like consultant, which was a word that I sometimes found that teachers in particular are a little hesitant about. And I thought freelance captured a little bit more of the work that I do, which is project-based where I pick up opportunities where I think I can be useful to schools, nonprofits, individuals, uh, as they interest me. So freelance is probably the term that comes closest to the way that I work now. What I like about it is that it gives you an impression of of your, uh, this is a bad comparison, but like a hired gun, yeah. a mercenary. You know, you go out and do the work that needs to be done. And there's no like, you know, there's no commitment to be in there for 30 years and getting a pension and all that kind of stuff. It's what do you need to have accomplished? And and how can I help you make that happen? And so the way that I, I'm trying to move into that kind of position as well to where I'm, I'm taking on different projects that are interesting to me and, and focusing on that and not having a commitment beyond that, um, beyond solving a specific problem. And so, you know, that presents some challenges and some great opportunities as well. Let's talk first about some of the challenges that come with that. Like people think not having a pension is a challenge and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, maybe to some people it is, but what are some of the other challenges that you've seen being a freelance educator? I have a a high level of tolerance for, uh, I guess I skew towards novelty instead of towards security when it comes to what makes me feel comfortable Um, I'd say freedom is really important to me as an educator, the ability to speak my own mind and to be my authentic self in the roles that I serve. So the challenges for me are a little less severe than they might be for somebody who needs a little bit more stability and security. But pension is probably the most common question I get from folks who want to know about freelance educator world. Um, And for me, in Basically, what that meant is I just paused my retirement in the public school system and took that same financial commitment and just put it into something that's on my own, which, again, to me, feels very freeing. Other people, that might be a little bit scary. I did just some of the things that make it a little more difficult if you're used to a steady paycheck that comes on a certain day. Take some time to develop the organizational skills to know when money's coming in and how in order to pay your bills. Compromising with your spouse when it comes to what you're used to versus what that looks like in the long run, or anybody else that you're financially tied to. You have to be pretty comfortable with saying yes to things you're not sure about and saying no to things that could be good opportunities because you don't have a lot of time to do them. So that's something I think a skill that you learn over time. But one of the things that I do notice as an educator, and I hear this consistently from other people who've made similar choices, it sounds like I have a lot of projects going on at one time. And people are oftentimes amazed that so much is able to be accomplished. But any role that I've ever had in education, doesn't matter what your title is. You have 600 projects you're working on. I have 50 now. So, you know, I actually have met fewer projects 
uh, with a title that sounds like it's more things, they're just actually named now and they're linked to some sort of contract versus a role that encompasses so many different facets. Yeah, and a role that can balloon to fill whatever it is that you may, that your principal or superintendent or whoever may feel like you need to do this additional thing. We often talk in education about taking things off of teachers' plates, and we're just not good at that. You know, once we see somebody's doing something, we just we just keep piling it on. I want to talk a little bit more about the retirement piece. It was interesting when I when I got into education. It was because of a law that was passed in Utah where I was which made it really uh, a good idea for people to retire from education. And so basically they, they cut the retirement benefits and people were like, Oh, I can't believe you're going into education now because it used to have this great pension and now it's not. And, you know, I thought the pension could be like a set of golden handcuffs that you can't get away from the place where you're at. And I have talked to educators who have said, well, I can't leave because I have my pension. And I, and if I work five more years, then then I'll be able to like get the max amount. And I'm like, well, how do you like your job? I totally hate it. <laughs> I can't wait for those five years to be up. And I thought, man, that just sounds like a horrible position to be in. And then when I moved to Alaska, it was a similar thing. And we got a 401k instead. And so instead of me having to stay there for a certain number of years, um, I was able to take that money with me when I left, which... I mean, that sounds like a great opportunity and you're not bound to someplace. And oftentimes we get bound to places that we don't need to. And with this different approach, you're seeing that you have these different projects that are tied to a contract. There's a duration in time and a duration, a scope to it as well. So what are some of the positives of doing this kind of work? And I think you've mentioned a handful of them as we've gone along. For me, one of them is just the the sense that you are constantly asked to do more work if you do good work, if you work in a traditional role in a bureaucracy. And what happens to me now is if I do good work, I'm asked to do more work, but that work I'm compensated for. So it's one of the the best advantages. It also, I think, is very tangible in terms of your usefulness in a project. You can always tell why you're there, why you're being asked to be there. And then your impact is just a little bit, I think, more tangibly measured, at least in the projects that I choose to take, where I can see how my being there influenced the project. I don't know that I always felt that way in especially administrative roles that I had where I was, you know, kind of keeping the wheels turning versus being the person who actually sets the wheel in motion, which is more commonly the role that I find myself in now. So that's a a big advantage for me in terms of in my career, I was feeling less of that I was making an impact and more that I was taking up space and to be able to take that into my own hands, especially at a time like now where there's just so much potential change in education. I feel like I'm well positioned to be able to use my skills in a way that's useful. And if I'm no longer useful, I can step away. So that's really important to me personally. Um, It also helps me to define my values. I can kind of test each thing I'm asked to do based on what matters most to me, what kind of work I like to do. A lot of times I had roles with titles that said the word curriculum in them, but curriculum writing was just a fraction of the time that I was actually spending on it. Now, if I take on a curriculum project, it's 100% curriculum. So if I am feeling like I want to do some curriculum writing, then I can seek out that type of work. So it's a little bit more concrete also, um, which I think is really important. I think another really wonderful thing is I can decide how to balance depth and breadth in projects. 
I like things sometimes where I can sink in and really get focused on something in a real micro situation. But I think there's also value to seeing things from a broader perspective. So for example, I work closely with one school system right now with a handful of maybe 15 teachers. There's my depth. I get to hear about their day-to-day experiences. I know some of the names of their students. I know their problems, their families' names. I get a little bit of that relationship building. But then on the other hand, I do two, three, four webinars a week that are across the country. So I can also bring back to those teachers, here's what I just heard was happening in Illinois. And when I'm talking to the people in Illinois, although I don't know them very well, I have a handful of experiences of depth to show some credibility and to help those teachers to see that I'm not just a talking head. I also have deep connections to something. So I like to control that balance myself. And in previous roles, that was controlled by outside factors that I couldn't really do that myself. So I really like that when I'm missing something, I can go seek it and pull it in. Yeah. And just a side note about the idea of roles and titles in education. You know, we put the title of teacher on someone and that means so many different things. And rarely does it mean that that's all you do is teach. It means that you, you know, you have other responsibilities that you still need to do, even though teaching is, is what you really want to do. And the other challenge with that is that when you say a teacher, everybody has this idea of what that is. And recently I was, uh, I, I hired someone to be a educational coach is what I'm calling it for my own children. Uh, Cause we're doing homeschool this year and I wanted somebody else to be able to give them ideas and influence them. And so we hired this woman to do that. And she doesn't have a teaching degree. And I said, I don't want someone with a teaching degree because I don't want you to feel like you need to be a teacher. I don't want you to teach my kids. I want you to check in on them, see how they're doing, get them to practice talking to an adult, to someone different, and maybe help find recess resources, not recess, <laughs> find resources for them so that they can you know, expand what they're doing. And it was interesting as I was talking to her, I said, I'm not interested in a teacher. So if that's what you're looking for, this isn't going to be a good fit. And she said, well, good. I want to help kids learn, but I don't want to teach them stuff. I don't want to be the one who says, this is this is the thing you have to learn next, but I want to help them learn however I can. And it was it was such a fascinating conversation because she was exactly the person that I was looking for. And exactly what I needed, because had I, you know, put out a a call for a teacher, I would have gotten someone who said, uh, I will come and teach your kids. And this is my curriculum and all that. That's not what I was looking for. So being able to define things differently yourself, I think is, is super important. Now, when educators think about making extra money, because we all do, because (laughs) the money's not great. We often think of things like teachers pay teachers or just getting a second job. And you have a little different approach to, to that. What is it that you, what advice would you give to an educator who's looking to make more money? What strategies would you suggest they start pursuing to do that? One of the things that I'll often say in conversation with teachers who have that interest is every teacher has some things that they do really well and different and better than anybody else. And they're not always validated by a public school system or parents or students, but there are things that if you think, if a teacher really thinks about what, what do I love the most? What am I most capable of? What do I read about when I get the chance to read about it? And it might be something like communicating with families. Or uh, maybe something like 
I'm really effective at working in a team and helping people to see compromise. Or I really like to take a big sticky problem and divide it into incremental parts and help people to figure out how to solve it. Those are the cues, I think, for the type of work that you can do next. So if you think about what do people call on you for over and over again, and and if you're an educator and you're working in a public school system, a private school system, chances are you give that away for free all the time. It's the thing that your friends call you about in the evenings. It's why you get invited to be on certain committees. If you're not sure what that is, although I think my experience, most people can figure that out. Then the question's a little odd to them, but after a little thought, they can come to it. If you can't, it's not a bad idea to ask your colleagues. What, when, when do you need me? What do you need me for? Why do you have me on a team? Once you can identify that, the next step is to say, so who needs that? And the who needs that is changing quickly right now. You know, you're talking about hiring a coach. That's a role that some people listening might say, I would love to do that. So if they can figure out who needs that and started advertising that, that skill, they could do that in the evenings and on the weekends. They could do that and take a part-time position within their school system. Um, if some people right now are faced with having to say, I can't safely go to my school, so I am quitting and I need to do something. There's a skill set that is developed that I think is already innate inside teachers, but most teachers grew up going to school, thinking about being working in a school and then have only ever lived in a school. Um, and in my area where I live in Virginia Beach, we're a huge military community and it, you see something similar with people deciding if they're going to retire from the military. They don't understand how transferable their skill set is outside of their industry unless they've seen other people do it. They have good role models and examples. So they tend to re-enlist over and over again because that's where their kind of credibility lies and where all of their relationships are. I think that there's a lot to be offered from teachers outside of education industry, certainly, but there are new audiences now that that those skill sets are just really needed. And there's a lot more joy to be found when you can do the work you like to do as your full-time job. Yeah. And one of the things that I was thinking of is, you know, with all the pandemic pods that have happened over the last year and a half, the the opportunities for people to just step right out of the classroom into something like that, that's a real opportunity. But then also recognizing that now that we know everybody can do this online education thing, we may not need the workforce to be in schools like they currently are. And there may be opportunities for, you know, people who are great math teachers, for example, to just start teaching math only online. And that's all you ever do. And people, you know, join your class specifically and you become the best math teacher out there. And, you know, Khan Academy is a good example of where that started, but a teacher who has the experience and knows where kids struggle and how to help them and can do that uh, one-on-one or one-on-many teaching can really have some, some opportunities that, you know, they may have been able to do before, but many people would not have given it the time of day. And now that we've all been virtual for so long, we can, we can say, you know what, rather than going to this teacher where things aren't, I don't know, they're going to be great. I can go to this teacher that I know is amazing and can be just awesome. And I should go spend my time and energy with them. And the reason why we're homeschooling this year is because that that was our case. When we moved from Alaska down to Washington, we didn't have any connections. We didn't know anybody. And we knew that we could do education this year just as well, if not better than what a school that we didn't have any relationship with could do. Had we still been in Fairbanks, it would have been a different situation because we knew and had relationships with the teachers and the students in the school up there. And down here, we just didn't. So it made a lot more sense 
for us to seek a different approach for this year. So when when you think about those other opportunities, some in education, some outside of education, there's really a lot of a lot of things that you could do. And in uh, last week's episode with Eric Stevens of this podcast, we we talked a lot about that, and he talked about educators transitioning out of the the system as well. And I think right now it's just a good time to have that conversation. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. But I do want to change gears a little bit and talk about something else that you're doing, which is called Adjacent. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Adjacent is a play on the concept of the adjacent possible, which is a theory that when an innovation develops, other innovations develop parallel to that innovation. So the idea is that when something, there's a system in place, like say Amazon is an online marketplace people can develop really innovative small businesses that they wouldn't have been able to do if Amazon wasn't there as a vehicle to drive their business. So the idea of adjacent is to create an opportunity for educators to think way outside of the norm, parallel to what's happening in public schools, with the hope that eventually that type of innovation would inspire a school system to change and challenge some norms that have been unchangeable for decades. So Um, The Adjacent Collaborative is basically made up of educators who are driven internally, who have a strong moral compass, who have uh, solid beliefs about what education should be, that being an educator is part of their identity beyond just their paycheck, who have developed a really keen sense of professionalism, who are leaned on again and again to be the leader in whatever role that they're in who are interested in having a little bit more self-efficacy and the ability to actually make change happen in a small way that hopefully collectively becomes a a bigger way. So a lot of that involves conversation. It involves advocacy for specific policies in our our local area, which right now our, our group is mostly local, but also creating opportunities for people to publish, to speak, to share ideas to a wider audience that could ultimately become this type of freelance work, if that's what they're interested in, or just a safe harbor for some of the things that really drive them and and motivate them to stay in a classroom and to be effective in that role. So our, our kind of main focus at this point is thinking about if you're a doctor, you don't say, I am a surgeon at Johns Hopkins University. You say, I'm a doctor. Teachers do say I'm a teacher, but their loyalty goes to the school system they work for, for the most part. And we like the idea of this kind of like Hippocratic oath for educators, this idea that you're 
idea of who you are as an educator has a connection to this bigger purpose. And that's how you decide what work you want to do, what you'll tolerate in your workplace, um, how your day to day is spent, because you have this belief in what it means to be an educator that sits above your job. And that is a community of people who agree with that and are figuring out what we'd like to do with the power of the connectedness of our community. Yeah, I, li- I like that a lot. And so I think about like the the Hippocratic Oath being equated to an educational philosophy mm-hmm. that most teachers are required to turn in as part of their evaluation process. And what's good about the Hippocratic Oath is that it is short, sweet, and to the point. Mm-hmm. And uh, over the past several years, my educational philosophy that I've turned in has been we give kids what they need when they need it. Mm-hmm. And in that same vein, short, sweet, to the point. And it doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you what my focus is going to be. And what I appreciate about that approach is that what educators sometimes forget is that no school system is going to be loyal to the teachers or the principals that are in their system. It is going to be loyal to itself. And so a an organization like a school district or a school cannot be can't be loyal to its employees because it's just not possible. It needs to think about its own health and its own survival. And so when, you know, I got that lesson early on my very first year of teaching, I got hired two weeks before school started. And then two weeks before school ended, I was told that I was going to be reduced in force, which meant that I wasn't going to be at the same school the following year. And I realized then, you know, if, it didn't matter how well I performed as a teacher. We didn't have the enrollment. Therefore I was last one in, I was the first one out and that's all there is to it. And once I recognized that it made it a lot easier for me to say, okay, I'm going to go where I can do the best work and stay there as long as I can do work. And, and having that awareness is I think really important. So if you were to make a Hippocratic oath for educators, What would that be? Have you already got that in your head? Yeah, we actually have our first meeting next week to kind of collectively identify what that is. And I I think it's interesting that you say, you know, you have your statement that guides you. I think to a certain extent, our Hippocratic oath is that everybody is entitled to have their own oath, that you're allowed as an educator to have the thing that's most important to you and work toward it. So for us, you know, we want to from a professional perspective, live a lot of the things that we're saying are important at how we educate students, that personalization matters, that the way that you're connected to something matters. So um, we've defined some core values and we're still working them into a statement. But some of the things that we've talked about is the ability for an educator to be their authentic self in the classroom and anywhere that they're working, you know, that you're a whole person and then that's okay to show that to students. Another one is the the right to be connected to others in some way, connected to people who share your beliefs and also people who respectfully challenge them. Um, we believe that growth is important and that opportunities for growth are somewhat the responsibility of the educator, that you can't wait for somebody to share with you the learning experiences. You have to go seek them and you have to find and know what you need to know to grow. Um, we also talk a lot about balance. I think that's become really important. This idea of work-life balance, also time in front of students and time to think balance and physical health and mental health and all of the other things that come with being a balanced educator, which makes you better. And then the last one we also talk about is this 
definition of legacy. Like, what is it that you're going to leave behind when you when you go away? You know, that that everybody is replaceable in individual situations. But where are you feeling like you contributed to the body of work? And and how do you articulate that? What's tangible that you can actually see? Um, because we think that that drives people to continue to do the work that matters. It makes them feel useful long after they're retired from a system that they continue to contribute. And then also that systematically over time, schools learn from their best people that capital doesn't leave when somebody leaves, that that grows over time in a way like you might think more of a scientific community where the body of knowledge increases. I don't know that our group believes that that's true all the time about public education. We see much more of a swing back and forth and back and forth than a solid body of knowledge that grows and increases over time. I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I definitely think that we are more of the pendulum and depending on the whims and, and feelings of the people in charge, that's where things go rather than this pursuit of knowledge and improvement that, that we would think the scientific community would would be an example for us. And, you know, one thing that my good friend Damon Hargraves and I talk about a lot is the idea of a, an educator bringing with them their tool set of uh, technologies, skills, abilities, and, uh, and also physical things that they bring with them to a new job. And rather than saying, here's the curriculum over here, adopt this and, and start teaching that those books over there, like my first year teaching, I was walked into the classroom as many people were and said, there's the books and that's what we need to cover. And that's just not a fulfilling way to, to do anything. And so I um, very quickly gave that up and, and said, okay, I think I'll do something in here, but if you aren't even saying exactly what I need to do, it must not be that important. And so, you know, bringing in skills of, you know, podcasting or, writing or blogging or doing something on social media or video production or whatever your skills are that you bring in as an educator, actually having those be valued and recognized, I think is a really important piece of what you're talking about. That if if everybody brings their best to the work in their own unique individual way, then that's going to make it better for everybody. And I think about the times that I've, <laughs> that I've had to do something a certain way and how much I hated it. And when I've been able to do things in the way that I want, how much extra time and energy I put into it beyond what was required. And, you know, so for example, my first year teaching, we did some blogging with the students. I found some old computers, figured out how to use a Mac, which I'd never used before that time and figured out how to get my students blogging. I remember the, the pushback that I got of, well, we can't do this because this, that, and the other, and how it took this wind out of my sails and made me feel like, well, maybe I shouldn't even try. But then I was like, well, you know, I'm going to do it anyway. And so I did. And what I got from that was way more than I put in. And I put in a lot, way more than I would have if I was just teaching out of the book. And we've got to recognize that and value that and, and make that part of what we're doing. Anything else to add on that? Yeah, and one of the things that, that makes me think of, I talk to teachers a lot when they're in an emotional situation. You know, there's a crisis that's happening at the school and, and they need somebody to talk to. You know, something has bothered them. Usually it's when their values have been questioned in some way. And one of the things that I, I like to ask them is, what's the cost of rebellion? Like, what could actually happen if you do what you think is right in this situation? So is there a creative way to avoid being actually insubordinate and get this accomplished? And so 
Um, just a, a quick example, I have a neighbor who's a kindergarten teacher who is teaching remotely right now. She's got two or three students that follow the school's attendance policy by logging in in the morning and then they disappear. They're not back again for the rest of the day. She has a very close relationship with the children's parents. Families are in crisis. They just simply can't prioritize the kids signing on every day for school. And so she has to call and call and call as by the school division policy to keep pursuing that family. The family tells her the same thing every time. She worries about it eroding their relationship. The newest thing that came after the, the holiday season was that she needs to now tutor the, the, the student, which would require even more screen time. So she was really concerned about five-year-olds being on the computer even beyond an already exhausting school day. And so, you know, we kind of talked about what would be a better situation. And one of the things that, that she started saying out loud was, it would be better if I could be replacing something with the tutoring instead of adding it. So we started talking about, okay, what could we replace? So the, the student does a lot of, the, she has to assign a lot of independent work. And that's where the student isn't doing the work because the parents can't help because it's a five-year-old and they can't do it themselves. So we started talking about, okay, so what if you called the parents and you said, I know independent work is difficult. I have the solution. I'd like to offer one-on-one -on -one sessions with your child. Still doing the tutoring. You're just doing it during the school day and you're replacing something instead of adding something. And she was worried because she wanted to ask permission. And I said, what would happen if you did it? What would happen if you didn't ask permission, you just did it. And the child started attending school and making some gains. Do you honestly think you have a good relationship with your principal that your principal would say, stop doing this? And if they said, stop doing it, and all they said was stop doing it, that was the consequence. Is that so bad? Is that something you can live with? Do you feel okay about that? So you have two choices here. You can continue to pursue this family or offer tutoring you think is ineffective. Or as a professional, you could make the call and do it quietly, no harm. You're not doing anything wrong. You're actually helping the family and probably developing rapport with this child to the point where they ask their parents to sign on every day because they want to see you. They want to see your dog. They want to they are excited about learning. They're feeling some success. So ultimately, you know, she made that call to just try it. And she sends me messages every once in a while of something the child said, or she's just feeling really good about it. And she is a little afraid still that someone's going to find out and she's going to get in trouble or whatever that may mean. But in the end, she's done something that feels right. And she took a professional stand, which is giving her a little bit of courage. So that's something that I, I think a lot about is this idea of in trouble and what it actually means and how little people actually know what goes on in your classroom. And if your decision making is based on what's right for kids, I know a lot of school administrators who, while they can't hold you up on a pedestal and give you an award, will turn the other way if they know it's right for kids, even if it's against a policy, because that policy is not designed to harm children. It's designed to keep children from harm. So, you know, there's a, a reason to rebel quietly in some ways if the consequence is something you can live with. Well, I've said many times on this podcast, and I will continue to say it, that I often did not do anything that the district asked me to do until they asked me the third time. And if they were really serious about it, then they would keep harping on things and keep bringing it up. For example, we had to do accreditation one year and they said, you need to have all these meetings with your staff and do all this stuff. And I knew that it meant absolutely nothing because I'd been through accreditation before. We'd done we'd done the, the jumping through the hoop stuff, didn't change a thing. I knew this was going to be the same thing. And so I didn't do any of the stuff that they asked me to do. I submitted all the things myself. And in the end, we got a passing score on our accreditation 
And what changed? Not a single thing, because that wasn't anything that was meaningful. And so you really do have to take those things from your principal, from your te- from your superintendent, whatever the case may be, and say, is this really what we need to be doing right now? And and is this in the best interest of those who are involved? And is this a good use of my teacher's times? And if you can't say yes to those questions, then you really shouldn't be doing it. And it's okay to take, as you said, a professional stand. And I want to give people courage to do that because it's really easy to think, well, I can't get in trouble. And part of the problem with educators is that we're a bunch of rule followers Mm -hmm. and we want to do what's right. And we want to be accepted and not feel like we're in trouble. And sometimes we really do need to to get into good trouble. One of the the things that our organization is really interested in is that definition of professionalism that's on every teacher evaluation system that even if it's not true, we perceive that compliance is what professionalism means, that um, I, uh, you're apolitical and that you um, oh do what you're told and that you're not insubordinate and all these other things. Part of our, our aim with having this Hippocratic Oath kind of a concept is if you know what your bottom line is as an educator, every decision you make can be driven by that. So you can say, is this a time that's worth rebelling, whatever that may mean, because it matches my core values more than following the rules do. And if I follow this rule, am I actually compromising that core value in a way that I'm going to feel shame and guilt and anger about, and then be less effective? So, you know, it's not to say don't listen to anybody, because for the most part, at least they're trying in general to make rules in school systems that are good for kids and good for teachers. You just have a unique opportunity as a person who's the boots on the ground to sometimes point out where it's not working because it might be that the decision makers don't realize those nuances or quietly do the thing that you feel is the most the the way the right way to do it so there are times when it's important to advocate and there are times when it's just important to do what you think is right and i think the that that rebel streak for some people, they love it. And I'm one of those people. Like I've never had a problem with that. And I and I'll talk to a lot of people who will say, that's just not me. I'm not that person. So they have a, a harder time and a, a, a bigger a hill to climb, I think, than for, for those of us who sometimes can be obstinate just because it's fun. Um, the, the rule follower has to compromise some things. But if they have that strong sense of moral conviction, they have a community they can speak to and say, am I crazy here? Or is this something that makes sense? And they see examples of people doing that. And then defining that as professionalism, I think is another important aspect of this, of saying that courage actually is what a professional educator is and should be, not that that's being unprofessional by whatever standard that means in your your normal life. And so we're trying to hopefully co-opt that concept of professionalism and to take practicing educators and say, what do we mean professionalism is? And how would it look differently than the way we currently define it? Yeah, that's a really good point. And you just identified one of the regrets regrets that I have from being a principal is that I did not encourage that non-compliance and dissent as a part of professionalism. And so I apologize to everybody that I ever said, you're not professional if you're not compliant. Uh, it just makes me feel sick to think about it. So anyway, learning opportunity for me. Thank you, Megan. So uh, in closing, how do people get uh, to be part of Edjacent and learn more about that? Yeah, the, my, my site, meganreftory.com, has just a little landing page where you can sign up to be part of our email communications. Um, our group is just starting to have monthly meetings, and our intention is to record those and then publish them so people can kind of see what's going on and then get involved as they'd like to. 
it's really important to us that this adjacent is a collective. It's not any individual's one project. So um, as much as possible, we're building it as we go. And so anybody who's interested in talking to us, having conversations like this, to be involved in the work that we're doing, we want them there. We want their voice there. We want their dissent. We want their noncompliance. And we want their um, ideas of how our own perspective as a group could be transformed by having another opinion, another idea come to the table. So for people who are interested in kind of redefining professionalism from themselves, if they need practical advice, like what do I do with my retirement payment and my pension kind of stuff, we have a group that can do that. But we also have a lot of people who are scrappy and they're willing to learn as they go. So we we like to put somebody in charge of something that they don't really know much about, because as a learner, they then can communicate what was hard and what was easy and what they picked up along the way. So um, if anybody is interested in learning along with us, that's also something that we're willing to encourage you. So again, MeganRaftery.com, there's a tab that says adjacent, and then people can sign up and then they'll get our regular correspondence and be invited to those monthly meetings as well. Yeah. And I will have a link to that in the show notes at JethroJones.com slash podcast, or just tap on the title of this podcast and it'll take you right there so you can get that. Um, Megan, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Once again, if you want to learn more from Megan on Twitter, she's at M-E-G-5-H-A-N or MeganRaftery.com. And thanks again for being part of Transformative Principle. Thanks for having me. It's great to, to meet your audience too. Hey, middle school principals, what if I told you that all your teachers had to do to teach your students really valuable social and emotional competencies was just press play? In Control SEL is a fully automated video curriculum that teachers and students absolutely love. And that's because it's easy, and it looks just like a Netflix or a YouTube show. So all you have to do to hear about how it can completely transform your school is schedule your call. Tell us Jethro sent you and you'll get 20% off if you feel like it's a good fit. So go now to www.incontrolsel.com slash strategy call to schedule your call today. The link will be in the show notes. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.